0: Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. I really wanted you guys to have enough time to check out the thumbnail for today's show, which is unquestionably my finest handiwork. Perhaps ever. I mean, it's got it all. It's got a rudimentary Photoshop, it's got a pun, what more could you ask for in life but puns and rudimentary Photoshop skills? The answer, friends, is nothing. That's all of the stuff. Good Wednesday morning to you all. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a SportsEthos.com presentation. I am at Dan Vespris, your host, Dan Vespers. The at is for those of you that are plugging it in on social media. And I hope you guys will come find me over there. Uh, please take a moment to check out the show description. We've got a link to our Discord. We've got a link to our upcoming Trade Deadline live show. That's two weeks and one day from today. That's the Thursday, February the 8th. a.m. Pacific Time. We're starting first thing. Crack-o-dawn out here. And it's a five-hour live show, so heaven help me. Please do, by the way, navigate over to that page and drop a little thumbs-up on it before the show gets started. We're up to 413 pre-thumbs-ups on the Trade Deadline live show. Very cool, because I was kind of hoping to get to 500. And it seems like we might be able to do that in the first week of... uh, Trying to get you guys to hit that thumbs up button. So thank you to everybody that's done it. Thank you to anybody that's about to do it today. Like, rate, subscribe, all that good stuff. And uh, let's get into the news of the day. Big news today, of course, is not a player. It's a coach. Adrian Griffin axed, sliced, carved, punted. As head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks, I probably should have looked this up beforehand, but I'm pretty sure he has like four years on his deal. So, as embarrassing as it might be for Griffin, he can sit in a lounge chair for the better part of half a decade, uh, and basically never work again if he doesn't want to, but he probably will, so he'll probably latch on as an assistant coach somewhere, who knows, maybe take some time off. The bigger news is not the fact that Griffin was fired, but the replacement And it's Doc Rivers. How, I ask you all, how to quote the great Jesse Pinkman, how does he keep getting away with this? Doc Rivers, who by all accounts seems like a a pretty good leader. We know he uh, led the Clippers through a tumultuous time with the Donald Sterling, the end of the Donald Sterling era, and then into this sort of majestic new Steve Ballmer universe. And he went to the Sixers, and he led them through a little bit of tumult. But at the end of the day, and, you know, I I try to give everybody, at every level of everything, as many benefits of the doubt as humanly possible. Doc Rivers has been flat-out bad at head coaching, I mean, pretty much since like year Sterling, you know, he got the Clippers through that. That was great. Uh, they needed someone that could shepherd them through a difficult time. But since then, he's just had a series of epic playoff flameouts, of poor adjustment making in the postseason. And, you know, we're talking about the, the, Celtics Big 3 Championship, which, like, we're talking a very long time ago now. That's like 15, 16 years ago. He hasn't really had the type of, and I get it, like, medium-deep playoff runs, you could call success It's to some level, uh, but, like, compared to expectations... He's been a colossal disappointment for the last 14-ish seasons, outside again of being the guy to help the Clippers with a transitional era. He was the right guy for that. A strong, a presence. The Clippers needed a presence to get them through that era. Is that what the Bucs need, is a presence? Feels like what the Bucs need is ingenuity, It's like fresh new thought on how to run a defense or an offense or whatever. I mean, maybe Doc's been doing a whole lot of soul searching and self-reflection, but it sure seems like he's mostly just yucking it up on the sideline, which frankly seems like a really good deal. And as a broadcaster, I would give anything to have had the job that Doc Rivers just gave up. It's also, and looking at the Shams report on all of this thing, and I'm not going to throw that tweet up on the screen uh, because it would take me longer than it would take to just read it. The Shams tweet from about an hour ago says, and I quote, the Bucks started discussions with Doc Rivers as an informal consultant in early December. It's a month and a half ago. And Tuesday, that's two, yesterday, began working toward a lucrative contract to have him replace Adrian Griffin as head coach. So this dude, the Doc, comes on as a consultant informally. Though don't worry, friends, it's not formal. It's a very informal consulting gig. He's just going to be giving you some measured guidance on a few things. A month and a half ago, that's how long it took Doc Rivers to convince the people in charge through, I'm sure, a series of very well-meaning notes as his consulting gig that the problem could only be solved by one man and it was the informal consultant the call is coming from in inside the building i mean this is brutal i get it man cutthroat and all that but if doc screws this one up and i'm not far be it for me to say what's going to happen next we've seen I think enough of Doc Rivers since the Boston Celtics championship to have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen next. But we don't know. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. If he screws this one up, this will be the last chance. Because you can't do what he just did to get the job to effectively, and like, maybe more details will come out about this. I, I reserve the right to go back and change my opinion. But as of this moment, my opinion on this situation is Doc Rivers snaked ahead head coaching job. He came on as an informal consultant six weeks ago and informally consulted his way to a job that they had just given to Adrian Griffin after firing uh, Mike Budenholzer. Adrian Griffin signed uh, a, I think it was 4 million a, a year. I forget how many years we're on his deal. So it wasn't like, you know, some of these head coaches are getting eight, nine, $10 million. It wasn't one of those blow it out of the water contracts, but it wasn't nothing. That's a lot of money to just kind of have floating around out there. What does it mean for Milwaukee's fantasy prospects? You know, I honestly don't know because Doc Rivers has had different impacts on different players. He tends to be uh kind of big man friendly on the offensive side, but you know, the big man in Milwaukee is, you know, Dan Vesper's favorite Brooke Lopez, but he's not exactly the feature, the focal point on offense for that team. So we'll see. Honest to goodness, I have not a clue. I would assume that fantasy values stay somewhat unchanged. We'll probably see some more adjustments on the defensive side, and hopefully that doesn't knock out any of what Lopez does well. Uh, and you'll probably see a coaching bump of some kind. You'll probably see the Bucks play well for a few games. And then I feel like reality is going to set in, and the whole thing is going to realize that, what did they really get here? Anywho. Let's talk a little bit about yesterday. Denver beat Indiana 114-109. Indy hung in there pretty well, considering they're without Halliburton for the week. Uh, Buddy Heald had a total garbage game, but you're hanging on. As long as he's starting, you are holding. He's been very good as a starter for Indiana. He has these games every once in a while where he's a total tank mess disaster. Don't worry about it. Uh, Andrew Nemhardt had 15-7. T.J. McConnell had 17-7 off the bench. They split the point guard minutes twenty seven twenty one, which unfortunately kind of and I both both of them actually had okay lines in this particular ball game, but by and large, if that's the split, then neither one of them has sustainable fantasy value with Halliburton out. You need Nemhard to get about thirty-three minutes to get there. You need McConnell to get to about twenty four minutes to get there. So as they're currently built, we needed to just tip one way or the other by like three minutes, and then we'd have a take. And I get it. A lot of you watch a podcast like this, and you're like, Dan, they both had good lines. Why aren't you saying pick up both of them? Well, because we know enough about these guys. This is a show, this podcast is teaching you how to handicap fantasy basketball as well. We know Nemhart's stat set. We know McConnell's stat set. You can't be swayed by Nemhart shooting 7 of 9, one ball game. You can't be swayed by McConnell taking 11 shots in 21 minutes. That's not going to be his shtick. Now his field goal percent generally is good, so with McConnell, that's why you only need 24 minutes because the steals, the assists, the field goal percent—this interesting combo of stuff usually gets him there. But we know from many years of McConnell and from far, far fewer years of Nemhard what it actually takes to get them there. And here Nemhard going perfect six for six from two in this ball game. Not a repeatable thing. We know that. Aaron E. Smith, I think, is a hold. And a lot of these guys, by the way, will be better when Halliburton's in there because of how the offense gets run, because Nemhart just isn't that great of a point guard. Easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy. Nothing on the Denver side. Everything is everything. Nothing is nothing. Start the starters. Don't worry about anything else. Uh, And then, you know, I I probably should clarify, Aaron Gordon is a start-the-starter only in particular formats. He's not a 9-cat value on the year. There's just nothing ever changes in Denver, so we don't really need to talk about it. The Knicks beat the Nets 108-103. This ended up being actually, we had more com- slightly more competitive games yesterday than I think we thought we were going to get going into it. Uh, good news for the Nets is that Mikhail Bridges had another excellent ball game. He's on a nice little run right now, and he's pushed himself up uh, to number 83 over the last month, I think. And 78 on the year. So the month, actually, it's really more like the last two weeks for Bridges. Whoops, Dano, you had the wrong timeline plugged in. He's number 28 over the last two weeks. And nothing about what he's done over the last two weeks is all that wildly unsustainable. He's at 25, 5, and 4. The defensive stats are a little bit better. He's at 46% from the field, which isn't like blowing the roof off the building or anything. And then if you go just the last week for Bridges... Uh, it's kind of the same thing. Field goal percent's a little higher. Free throw percent is lower. This all feels repeatable. This all feels like what we thought we were getting with Bridges on the year. So hopefully he can keep trucking along as sort of somewhere between 25 and 45. And if he can do that, maybe we'll forgive the first half of the damn season. As far as the rest of the situation out here, um, remember we talked on yesterday's show about why I didn't want to deal with Precious Achua? Well, here you go. He didn't even start. Jericho Sims got the start, did block four shots. That's the good news for Sims. The bad news is that he doesn't really post much in the way of fantasy value, because if he didn't block four four shots in this game, there really would have been kind of nothing for Sims. So I'm not picking him up. Uh, I'm not picking up Achua because I don't like his fantasy game. And then Josh Hart and Dante DiVincenzo. Neither one of them was all that great yesterday, but I continue to lean to Dante in the never-ending battle for wing minutes. DiVincenzo, Grimes, Hart. I don't wish injury on anyone, but I do wish that one of those three guys was not there. That would make that whole situation a lot simpler. As far as the Nets go, I have concerns. I have continuing concerns about Cam Johnson, who finally had a better shooting game. He had 19-5 with four three-pointers on good percentages. No steals, but, you know, we're not going to toss this one back. problem is that he and Cam Thomas are, at this point, kind of splitting minutes, which is not at all what we thought was going to happen going into the year. And this is another situation, Brooklyn's another situation, where we just need to thin things out. We know Dorian Finney-Smith and Royce O'Neill are on the block. It sounds like Mikhail Bridges, uh, Nick Claxton, and probably Cam Johnson are not on the block. We have no idea what the situation is with Cam Thomas. Spencer Dinwiddie is apparently on the block, and he had one of the worst fantasy lines of the whole year in this game with four assists and 0-4 shooting in 18 minutes. I've said on multiple shows this year, if you're just joining us for the first time, I don't trust Spencer Dinwiddie at all in 9-cat. He's number 150, one of the worst field goal percent guys in the NBA. All he does is get you a few assists. That's legitimately his fantasy game this year, because 13 points on the year is league average, slightly below it. The two three-pointers, I guess, is ever so slightly above league average. There's just, like, nothing that he does great. The assists are fine, usually, but not outstanding, and so... And you know, points leagues, I guess you hang on there because his massive field goal percent issue is less of one if that's not a factor. If you're punting field goal, then obviously he moves up the board quite a bit. So, okay, fine. But 9cat, he's not an everyday play. I know he's been 75 rank-ish over the last week. He had two or three good ballgames in a row. But if you go around that, you can't just look at the meat of the burger. You have to look at the bun and the lettuce and whatever other filler is going on there. That's been Dinwiddie this year. He's number 150. You are who you are, playing 31 minutes of ballgame, so it's not like there's just more usage coming his way. I don't know how many places he could get traded where his job would get better either, but I do know that if Dinwiddie gets moved, Dennis Smith Jr. is someone that I would like to use a lot, and I don't know that Dinwiddie's necessarily going to go anywhere, but it sounds like he is sort of available for trades. And Dennis Smith Jr. is very low-rostered. 10% in Yahoo! Leagues. Again, we're 15 days from the trade deadline. That might be worth exploring. When Dennis Smith Jr. gets starters minutes, he puts up some incredibly well-rounded fantasy lines. Doesn't score that much, but big steals, good assists, decent rebounds. Field goal percent is not a complete train wreck when he's not taking a bunch of weird three-pointers. We saw it last year in Charlotte. He had long stretches of like 50 to 80 range fantasy value. Does that make Dennis Smith Jr. a stash? Eh, Maybe. Maybe I'll do another show on trade deadline stashes. Everybody liked the first one we dropped last Saturday. I kind of have a couple more names to add to the list, and I think Dennis Smith is probably one of them. Now, what happens if if Royce O'Neal and Dorian Finney-Smith get moved? That's a tough one. Uh presumably Cam Johnson sees some advantage there cuz he probably has to pick up more power forward minutes. And then Cam Thomas would also see a bump cuz he'd then fill in more on the at the small forward spot. Would Lonnie Walker get enough run? Eh, I doubt it. Who comes back in these trades also becomes questionable. Does Ben Simmons show up? Does he make an appearance? Said it once, I'll say it a million times. I've gone on record saying I don't think he plays more than about five games this year, but we'll see. Portland playing a game under protest lost one eleven to one oh nine. The protest is that Chauncey Billups Blazers were leading this game by a point down the stretch, and Chauncey Billups was trying to call a timeout. Refs didn't see him. Blazers got whistled for a double dribble, uh, and then Chauncey got punted. Thunder got two technical free throws and then ended up winning the game by two points. That's rough, man. But it doesn't really matter from a fantasy standpoint. Fantasy-wise, you got your sort of good Scoot Anderson game, which, again, you know, we've gone over this so many times, so I hate to repeat myself, but I feel like I kind of have to because I have to treat each show like someone new is listening. Scoot's number ranked near the edge of the top 400 this year. At some point... One would assume he begins to figure out the NBA game a little bit, but he ain't there yet. Because every time we've had one of these sort of popping off games 19 and 7 here, he had 33 and 9 on January 14th, then there's usually two weeks of him learning curving it again, being very, very bad for a few games. Will he figure it out this year? I honestly don't know. With guys like Scoot, guys that come into the league and they're trying to learn the game, it usually takes until at least February. So if you're going to call him a stash, he's a late-season stash, and it might not pan out, but I get it. DeAndre Ayton was terrible, and he's been bad for a few games in a row, and he's frankly kind of been bad ever since this knee thing cropped up, and I'm wondering if it's actually gone. He's a tough hold, but he's a hold because he's DeAndre Aiden and he's a starting setter on an NBA team. Malcolm Brogdon continue to use him as a fill-in uh, for Shaden Sharp. And Jabari Walker, 14 and 13. I think I called him extraordinarily close to a pickup on yesterday's show. And so here's my here's my reticence. On Jabari Walker, who's uh, number one thirty-eight over the last two weeks, I had somebody in my mentions screaming at me that he was a pickup already. I'm like, well, okay, like let's 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 dial the the rage down a little bit. There, there really isn't a stretch of time this year where Jabari's been inside the top one hundred in nine cat, and a lot of that's because he's posted almost no defensive stats of any kind to speak of. Um, he had a block. In yesterday's game, which is a start, but also, I mean, we're talking about another guy and I have talked about someone yesterday where Walker, if given full starters minutes, you'd assume he could get you over one defensive stat for ball game, But it's just not a guarantee because he's basically been playing starters minutes for the better part of a couple of weeks now, and he's averaging under one defensive stat per game. That could come up, yes, and you got to like the rebounding, and you got to like the fact that he can knock down a three-pointer. But then I kind of look at this team as if to say, all right, well, you know, who's on the block for the Blazers? What could happen here? Malcolm Brogdon seems likely to be traded. I don't know that anybody else is likely to get moved. There are possibilities on this team. You know, if somebody really opens up the chest for Jeremy Grant— That would be the one that springs Jabari Walker. But it's not like someone else is really standing in his way right now. And he's posting, you know, kind of Bobby Portis-like numbers without as much scoring. That's not really a nine-cat line. But I don't want to come off on this show like I'm down on Walker. I'm just not seeing the obvious path to more Jabari Walker other than shutdown time. So when Grant starts taking games off and basically things that free up more usage, because Scoot will step into a lot of that. And, you know, Brogdon, he gets moved, but presumably at some point here, Sharp will come back. And does Simons get some days off? Eh, maybe, maybe not, because he missed a giant chunk of the season to start it off, and so he's sort of already running way behind the eight ball on games played. But yeah, you figure if Grant doesn't get traded, he'll probably get a game off every week between the trade deadline and the end of the year. Uh, and maybe he'll get the last, like, two weeks off. And you figure if Brogdon doesn't get traded, he'll get a bunch of time off, and so on and so forth. And so maybe these things do happen, and maybe, you know, every couple of games... Jabari Walker can get 14 shots like he did in this one, and that's enough for him to be inside the top 100. But the problem is the in-between. Where in head-to-head leagues, you just sort of swallow the other ones, and in roto leagues, you're going to leave them on your bench for, what, two out of every three, three out of every four ball games. Is that enough to warrant your roster spot? I actually think the answer is it's very close right now. It's not an obvious No. But I also think it's not an obvious yes. If you got some dead weight, feel free. You know, he got added in a bunch of spots because he's had a couple of double-doubles lately and his minutes have been on the rise. And again, you like the rebounding. But even in this, what you'd call kind of a good stretch for Walker, since he came back, he had an injury like week, week and a half ago. He's played six games in that stretch, and he's averaging close to a double-double, but like nothing else. Bad shooting, bad free throw, a three-pointer, almost no assists, almost no steals or blocks as well. The amazing thing is that he's only unrostered in one of my leagues, so people are willing in those leagues to wait on him getting double-digit shots, because that's what it's going to take. Six, seven, eight shots a game is not going to get it done. We're going to need 11 to 14 shots, somewhere in that window, that would be enough Because now you're talking 14 points. You're talking 13 to 17 points. You're talking those 9 rebounds. 14 and 9 is a much safer building block than 10 and 9. I know I'm not a big points guy, but an extra 4 goes a long way when guys are hovering in that 100 to 170 range. And then, maybe... We don't know. We haven't seen it yet. It's not like he hasn't played a decent amount this year. Maybe the defensive stats get a little bit better. That's the kind of hope if you're like, look, there's got to be some upside built in here. There may or may not be. So far, there hasn't been on the defensive side. But also, we just don't have that big of a body of work to say that it can't be in the future. I got nothing for you on the OKC side. I told you guys that Josh Giddy was going to fall off a cliff here at some point after his hot run, and then it happened, and then he'll get warm again, and blah, blah, blah. Utah got blown out. Uh, if you have any of the Jazz that didn't get obliterated in this game, consider yourself fortunate. I don't think anybody was streaming Fontecchio, because he'd been so cold lately, but then he came roaring out with a 6 of 9 shooting game. Colin Sexton was sort of like the everyday guy that survived this. I guess you could argue Walker Kessler kind of did, too. Missed a bunch of free throws, but had four more block shots. Chris Dunn, 17 minutes, not enough. Keontae George, <laughs> one out of eight shooting, good Lord. He did get nine f- out of ten free throws shooting, but, I mean, that's these are the games where George is better, is the blowouts. Uh, John Collins had hit w- his one good game every two weeks. Enjoy it. Um, but Markinen was bad, and just a rough one. Jordan Clarkson was bad. You knew that one was coming at some point soon. And New Orleans just ate him up. New Orleans had 23 three-pointers. CJ McCollum continues to be maybe the surprise of the year as number 20 still in 9-cat. I have no idea how he hasn't fallen off yet. But he hasn't fallen off yet. Defensive stats are super high. Field goal percent has remained very high. Turnovers are super low. And, like, you know, he had fallen back a little bit prior to this monster game. Herb Jones had a big one, uh, but he's been so inconsistent lately that it's really, really hard to recommend him as a, as a all the time play. He's still number 67 on the season, but a lot of that's because of what he did to start the year over the last three weeks. He does sit inside the top 100, a couple of giant games blended in there have helped a lot. A lot of the, you know, some of them were the games where Trey Murphy sat them out, uh, and a lot of it's because he's shooting 57% from the field over his last 10 ball games. 12 points, only 3 boards, two assists, 0.7 steals, 0.9 blocks. It's just been sort of like a little bit of everything for Herb over that stretch, but it's been good enough. Eh. I struggle with it because you kind of need to catch these big ones or like if you could if you pulled this one game out of the last 10 games for him, he falls way outside the top 100. Now, again, you're sort of playing with math in a way that you can't do because if you're starting him every day, you would have gotten this ball game. But what if you got upset with him and benched him prior to this one? You screwed yourself, but you'd be very human to do so. Uh, I still think Trey Murphy probably has the slightly better outlook between the two guys, but neither one of them, in my opinion, is a must start dude every single day. Murphy's been in a little bit of a cold snap. And he's kind of unusable when his field goal percent is down. Uh, Generally, you like the three-pointer field goal percent, free throw percent steals mix that Murphy gives you. But this was, by the way, this is like, it took a year, but I finally got massive vindication on last year's stuff. Do you guys remember, and you know, it's going to have to be people that actually listen to the show for multiple years in a row. But do you guys remember last season when I had uh, Trey Murphy on my injury replacement board for the entire year, and people were so mad about it, like I was saying something negative about him. I was merely saying that there was no definitive proof that he would have fantasy value if the big three guys on the Pelicans were healthy. And we've seen it now this year. The team is fully healthy, and Trey Murphy's number 120. There aren't enough shots for him when everybody's upright. Now, 120 is technically startable in most 12-team formats, so that makes him a hold. And I guess to that end, it makes Herb Jones still kind of a playable guy also in in a slightly more boring way, but they both stay inside that marker. But everybody was screaming at me like, oh, we've seen a Trey Murphy's top 60s, top 50s, top 60. I'm like, yeah, dude, you guys haven't seen it. Because last year there were four, I can literally count them on one hand, games that the Pelicans had all of their guys for. It was in November. And then they were just done. Brandon Ingram was out for two months. Zion was out for basically the entire year. And Trey Murphy went nuts. Because he was getting and He took 15 shots, by the way, in this blowout anyway. But he was getting 15 shots a game. Which just isn't going to happen regularly when everybody's upright. He's 10, 11 shots a night. I still like him as a hold, like I said. But he's a fringy one. And Herb Jones, he's technically a hold, but he's a fringy one. Obviously way better when Trey Murphy sits, or if one of the big guys sits. But just barely good enough even when they don't. And then Larry Nance, who you guys know I have the softest spot for in my heart. I so badly want Larry Nance to get 23 or more minutes nightly. He's he's teetering on it, man. But 18, 19 minutes is just not enough long-term. I know this game in particular, he did do enough. But over the last, uh, what are we at now? Last like three weeks, what's the minutes look like for Nance? He's at 20 minutes over the last three weeks. And he's technically been a top 75 play on 9.6 boards, a three, a steal, and half a block. 65-93 splits, which I think we know is is not a sustainable number. So if you pull out, if you move him back towards his normal percentages, then he does fall likely outside the top 100. But I just, I want Nance to work so bad. I think on the head-to-head side, you could probably play him every day, understanding that Zion's going to get some days off, and Trey Murphy's going to get some days off, and all those little things will help Nance in the long term. And then you're going to get games where the Pels play a team where they need defense over offense, and he'll get more minutes than JV. Just like one night every three or four ball games, it'll flip, And so you roll it all together, and Nance is probably inside the top 120. But, now for game-cap Roto, you're kind of hunting someone 99-ranked or better. Uh, I did pick him up in a couple of spots, places where I badly needed a center. You know, teams where I had, like, Robert Williams go down and Mark Williams go down. And I'm sitting on one center in some leagues. You know what, i got to have somebody in here, so let's do a Nance dance. But if you're good at center, you you sort of don't need Larry Nance in his 20 minutes per ball game because there's just there's no upside at all as long as the team is mostly healthy. And finally, Lakers without LeBron, they actually kept this thing pretty tight. But the Clippers shot almost 60 percent. There was just no way the Lakers were going to win, giving up a 60 percent shooting night. Uh, Jared Vanderbilt, Torian Prince, Rui Hachimura all got to do a bunch more with LeBron out don't read too much into that, but it was nice to see Vando, he's he's getting his legs a little bit back more every week, that's good for the Lakers, who probably end up swinging a trade here in the next two weeks, uh, but like, look at the team right now, D'Angelo Russell is kind of carrying the team, he's been better than LeBron the last couple of weeks, I don't know anybody wants to hear that, and look, I'm Not me taking anything away from LeBron. He's a frickin' cyborg. But LeBron is ranked outside the top 100 over the last two weeks because he's had no defensive stats. He's been a bad free-throw shooter, very high turnovers. His field goal percent has come back down kind of where I thought it would be this year. And so you've seen some drop-off. And LeBron is now a third-rounder per game, which, look, I don't want to say I said it, but I did tell you guys he was probably going to be third-rounder or deeper. I didn't think it was going to take 40 games to get there, but LeBron is finally coming down to earth with the understanding we knew he wasn't going to be asked to take as many shots this year, that his usage was going to be lower. And he was carrying it on a ridiculous, frankly, unsustainable field goal percent. That has now dropped, and the steals and blocks have come down a little bit, although he's still at 1.9 combined, which is pretty good. But if you look at, like, the last little stretch here, he's made a lot of bad decisions. He's been very stagnant on offense, and it's been D'Lo that's been carrying the Lakers on offense. Top 20 run here for Russell over the last two weeks. That's obviously not going to keep up. He's shooting 53% and hitting four three-pointers over that stretch. This is the moment to trade D'Lo because his value will never be higher, either fantasy or reality, Does DeJounte Murray make the Lakers a championship team? No, I don't think so. Does he make them better, longer term? Yeah, he does. He's a better basketball player than D'Lo. The question, I guess, is how much it costs the Lakers to upgrade that spot. And you're almost thinking about what comes next, because D'Lo is sort of mid to late prime, and DeJounte Murray is still very much early prime. It, from that to that end, it makes a lot of sense for a Lakers team. That's probably looking more towards the future. Is it the move that gets him over the top again? I don't think it is. Uh, in my eyes, the Lakers need to make that move and then probably something for point of attack defense. Uh, maybe they're hoping that Gabe Vincent comes back and can give them that, but I don't know. I don't know. can count on him to actually have any healthy stretch this year. I think you got to go break the bank and get Alex Caruso, but whatever. Meantime, Uh, Assuming LeBron's back for the Lakers' next ballgame, you're just starting the four main dudes. And then for the Clippers, I did say I had zero faith in Mason Plumlee. A lot of people yelled at me for my take that I would rather have Xavier Tillman, who also kind of crapped himself in the last ballgame, but I still would rather have Xavier Tillman because we've seen the Clippers are willing to go small. They went small in this ballgame. It wasn't even really all that clear who soaked up all the center minutes. Daniel Tice played 21 of them, and... He wasn't all that great, and Plumlee wasn't all that great. Uh, And they ran like little baby units for some stretches. Wasn't even really clear who the center was in those units. In any event, Clippers shot the crap out of the ball, and so they were kind of able to get away with it, even though their defense was bad because they went so small and the Lakers were able to just go to the rack a bunch of times. But Kawhi uh, and Harden and Norman Powell and PG and Terrence Mann and freaking Amir Coffee and even Russ like everybody shot the ball well uh and for the Lakers they were like look our only shot of winning this game is if the non superstars miss some jumpers and Russ Amir Coffee and Terrence Mann hit eight three-pointers out of 10 tries so tough luck tough nuts uh Kawhi Leonard second career triple-double in this ball game. That's fun little footnote for uh Kawhi who's number 6 per game in nine cat. Mm. Chef's kiss on that one. Oh yeah, that's been a good one. James Harden with another decent ball game. He sits uh mid second round. Paul George is number 12. Clippers are a fantasy just an absolute gem haul. And then Russ is the thing. Everybody's going to be like, Dan, should we go get Russ? No, no. He was pissed. He didn't play well against the Lakers. He had three three three-pointers, one of them not wearing a shoe. You got good Russ here. You're bound to get a bad Russ. And so, you know, don't overextend yourself on, uh, on Russell Westbrook. But we'll keep this one on the relatively short side today. Um... Quick reminder to check out our buddies over at manscaped.com. Promo code there is ethos20 to get 20% off and free shipping on your order. Shout out to our buddies over at the Believe Sports Network on uh, the partnership that we're continuing to migrate shows over there. So thank you to everybody that continues to listen. Like, rate, subscribe. Come hang out with us in our free Discord. That link is in the show description. The Trade Deadline Live show is in the show description. If any of you guys have not yet gone over there, And click the thumbs-up button on that Trade Deadline Live show. Please do that before you finish up listening to the podcast today. I am at Dan Vesperus over on social media. I hopefully will see you guys on Twitter. Oh, look at that. We cleared uh, 20,900 today. That's fun. I never thought I'd care, but I do. Uh, And we got plenty of stuff to work on over on social. So I think we'll put a pin in it for now. Um, I do want to get another... I want to get a buy low show going. I want to get another stash show going because I think, you know, I mentioned Dennis Smith Jr. is an option today. I think we had one or two other names that popped up since our show on Saturday, but I do also kind of feel like it's almost too close. Well, we'll see. I got a lot I want to do and not that much time to do it. So sit tight, relax, see what's up. And uh, if you guys have any questions, feel free to throw them in the comments tab uh, on our YouTube page. I do try to get to those about once every 24 hours or so. Again, this was Fantasy NBA Today, a Sports Ethos presentation. We'll see you guys soon. Probably.